even just being in the airport in Anchorage, it's like, why are you leaving? This is the place you want to be. This is, you know, this is so much better than everything that's back there. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Erin Jones. In this episode, we'll hear about a woman who had to face the mysteries in her own DNA. We're not using her real name for reasons we'll explain at the end of the story. We'll call her Lucy. Lucy grew up close to her grandmother. They made cookies and gingerbread houses together. She taught Lucy how to sew. She was just like other grandmothers, except in one way. My grandmother would fall all the time, and she fell in the snow once. We'd driven across the Midwest to get to the Field Museum in Chicago for this overnight. It was just huge blizzard conditions, but I just remember her getting out of the car as soon as we got there. I was maybe six at the time, and she just dropped into a real high snowbank. And and she got up, and she was okay, but there would be other times she'd fall on curbs, and she'd fall in the bathroom, and and it, it was getting worse and worse, and she'd, you know, just look real beat up a fair amount of the time. And Lucy started noticing other odd things about her grandmother's body, strange leg movements and facial tics. I know I, I got this idea in my head that maybe she'd had this series of really small strokes that had started incapacitating her, but not in a, but in a very slow build sort of way. When Lucy asked her parents what was wrong with her grandmother, she never got a clear answer. Until one winter, when she was 23 in her first year of law school. She was visiting home, and it was the day after Christmas. My parents kind of called us in for a family meeting and told my sister and I that it was Huntington's disease. Not a series of small strokes, not dementia, or not traditional dementia, that it was this other thing that we had never heard of. Lucy found out that Huntington's is a genetic disorder that breaks down nerve cells in the brain. It seriously affects physical and mental abilities. Once you've got it, your cells break down over a 10 to 25 year period. It's fatal. There's no cure. My grandmother's mother had died very young and other people in the family had these similar things going on. And in the 90s, they, they figured out what it was, but it just wasn't something that we talked about as a family. You know, my father was getting older, and, and he thought he had escaped it. And you know, my sister and I were both in pretty serious relationships, and we were making life plans and doing all those things. And so he... He went and got tested himself just for the gene, not for, he wasn't symptomatic. And the week before Christmas, Lucy's dad found out he had the gene. This was really scary for him and for the family. Because if Huntington's is in your DNA, it means you'll definitely get it at some point. You just don't know when. But they found out actually about a week before Christmas and then didn't want to ruin the holiday for my sister and I, which I, I mean, looking back on it now, is a very, very sweet gesture. But I, you know, just remember the most 
the saddest Christmas <laughs> because people, you know, they, they told my dad's parents and they told his siblings and so everybody else knew. And so there's a weird tenor to the holiday. My mom, <laughs> she told my sister and I, you know, don't Google this. Don't, don't look it up because it's not going to be that bad. There are people who have it worse uh, with Huntington's and it's going to look really terrifying. But, you know, your grandmother doesn't look that bad and things aren't quite that bad in our family. So, of course, you know, we the family meeting breaks up. I jump on Google immediately <laughs> and was terrified. Lucy found videos on YouTube of people living with advanced Huntington's. They made constant, involuntary movements. The movements were endless and eerie. You waited for them to resolve into a clear action, but the movements continued randomly without a goal. Somebody had called these movements Korea, as in choreography. But Korea made it almost impossible for these people to feed themselves or to take care of themselves. Some had wild emotional swings and tremendous difficulty holding a conversation. Cognitive decline. Many were emaciated and bedridden. You could very well die of something else first, get hit by a bus, which always fascinates me that all the neurologists I've talked to say that is the happiest thing. Like, you know, well, don't, you know, don't rely too much on these test results. You could get hit by a bus. And they sound so happy when they say that, which I've never understood. Since Lucy's dad had the Huntington's gene... That meant she had a 50-50 chance of having it, too. But she kept her focus on how her parents would cope. It was so much easier for me to focus on being afraid for them rather than thinking about it in terms of my future immediately, just because it's an... Oh, this is terrible to say, but it's an easier concept you watched how wonderful my grandfather was in taking care of my grandmother, both of my grandfathers in taking care of my grandmothers. And so I was like, I, I had a roadmap for that. After that Christmas with her family, Lucy went back to law school. I was like, those were my worst grades ever was <laughs> the semester right after. It, it helped in a way to be in such a structured environment. If I had taken the time off, I think I would have floundered. I would have been going through this depression without structure. And across the country from her parents, with a solid support system of good friends, Lucy started thinking more about how Huntington's might affect her. She was really close to her sister. They were both in law school. And right now, her sister was also wondering if she had the gene. We, we talked constantly those couple months about right after, those couple of months right after, about getting tested, about, you know, well, maybe we should wait till after the bar exam and just kind of focus on law school, get through law school. And we made all these, like, really, like, adult and grown-up plans about how, you know, we were going to just take our time and think about it for a while. And by the end of that semester, I was like, oh, no, screw that. <laughs> I need to know now because it's, it's something that's in every cell, I mean, it's, I, I couldn't look at my hands or I couldn't look at, you know, my skin and not think, well, you know, that cell knows. And if I knew how to read it right, then I would know, too. And it's just the there's a weird feeling of everyone else knowing and, and me not knowing, except everyone else in this scenario is just my DNA. So I I had to I had to find out. 
The testing process wasn't as simple as she'd hoped. After meeting with a neurologist and a genetic counselor, she still had to get approval from a psychologist before getting blood drawn. That step is in place because of a spike in suicide risk for people who test positive for the gene. And then, after all that, it still took 10 weeks for Lucy to get her blood test results. Every week she waited, she became more anxious and on edge. They don't want you to have any family members there when you get your results because they don't want you to be worried about their reaction and their guilt or their relief or how, you know, however it is they're going to perceive it. They want you to just be super selfish, focus on yourself with the results. And so my best friend flew out and we went and got the results. Um, and I did have it. I did have the gene. I, and the doctor said something, something about getting hit by a bus. He said something about, um, we don't have any treatments, but I hear blueberries are good for the brain and, you know, dark chocolate, antioxidants. I'm like, this is, this is what I'm hearing from a neurologist is what you'd get from, you know, like your great aunt forwarding you online. Like, <laughs> eat lots of blueberries, eat dark chocolate. That'll save your brain. So I was just kind of sitting there pretty numb, actually. And I I remember he handed me the box of tissues and I was just like, oh, I, what would I need this for? When the neurologist told me, I was actually real, I was relieved. Like the, the knot in my stomach totally disappeared. And that was like for a half second, that was, that was a wonderful feeling because I wasn't, I wasn't waiting anymore. I knew. And then it shifted very quickly to, okay, but now I'm also waiting in another way for all of this to start and for all of the bad things to happen that are presumably going to happen. And I, I think I might have choked up like when I called my parents after the appointment and, and told them and, and some of the other family members who, were, who knew that was happening that day. I think I had my first interview on campus for a, a law firm job five days after my test results, and that one went really, really poorly. That was possibly <laughs> the worst interview I've ever done, but they give you like 25 because they really want you to go work for these big law firms, so I got better at it, and by the next week I was really good at disassociation <laughs> and got some callbacks and got job offers. and felt very briefly like a normal law student again. Huntington's is not generally called Woody Guthrie's disease, but he's the most famous person by far. Bob Dylan was a huge Woody Guthrie fan and made pilgrimages to visit Woody in the hospital, in Brooklyn State Hospital, and he, he wrote this poem after Woody died, and it talks about hope and he, he ends on, there are two kinds of doors and two kinds of hallways. You can go to the church of your choice. You go to Brooklyn State Hospital. You'll find God in the church of your choice. You'll find Woody Guthrie in Brooklyn State Hospital. And it may be my opinion. I may be right or wrong. You'll find them both in the Grand Canyon at sundown. And that image has always stuck with me. His, his approach to nature and, and traveling and, and getting out there and just this, this feeling of when I stopped believing in God in the kind of Catholic sense, I would still talk to something. 
whenever I was outdoors in the mountains or just in a beautiful place and I'd sometimes I'd pretend I was just talking to a star in Orion's belt or I was talking to the universe but it, it felt very similar to praying and that was where I felt most calm. Lucy finished law school and got a well-paying job with a big firm. She was hoping to pay off her student debt as quickly as possible, but she still felt like she was looking for a bigger way to spend her able life. I was still in that place of trying to make a decision, trying to figure out you know, what the big next step is. And I thought for a while maybe I would go into genetic counseling and help people who are going through the same issues, and that would mean going back to school and doing this whole other thing. I had a lot of different thoughts. I started applying to other legal jobs back in the criminal realm. And then I decided, you know, I need to just take a, a short break and celebrate the fact that I'd paid off my debt. And I celebrated by going on this two-week vacation by myself in Alaska. Lucy booked the trip with an outfitter that would guide her on an adventure where she'd go backpacking and sea kayaking. I'm just driving east from Anchorage. I fell in love with the place immediately. It's, I'd say, almost impossible not to. Snow-capped mountains and beautiful lakes and streams and the ridiculous wildlife everywhere. You know, by the time I got to McCarthy, which was the base of our operations up there, you know, I, I was already thinking of ways to stay and I hadn't set foot on a glacier or <laughs> seen an iceberg yet. And I was already entirely sold. As soon as I got back, I mean, even just being in the airport in Anchorage, just like, why are you leaving? This is the place you want to be. This is, you know, this is so much better than everything that's back there. And, but, you know, I went back and, you know, I still had a job. So I just started kind of planning my escape route. And I didn't know how I was going to do it exactly. I, I didn't have any training for things. And this is, again, this is where I'm, not at all like Woody Guthrie. Woody would have just stayed being a lawyer. I was like, okay, well, I need this certification to be a guide and that certification, and I need this much training before I think anyone will hire me, so I need to plan this out. I ended up just talking to the people who I'd gone on this trip with who were incredibly welcoming and knew that I was eager, knew that I was excited about it, and just said, well, you know, you don't have to know anything. That's what we have interns for. So the next summer... Lucy quit her law job and moved to McCarthy, Alaska. It was incredible. I, mean, I was living in this little town with about 250 people. And that's, that's its big size. That's its summer size. And in the winter, it's down to 30 or 40, depending on the day. And the 65-mile you know, dirt road into town is totally inaccessible in the winter. It becomes its own little glacier. Lucy loved her summer internship so much. She got training that winter to become a full-fledged guide. Training was a little rough. I got frostbite on my toes. And during the training. During the training. So I had to, had to skedaddle on back down. Like, you go to the ER and they say, okay, well, what are your symptoms? Like, well, I have frostbite. And they're like, well, we can't put that in there. What are your actual symptoms? My toe is frozen. <laughs> okay, well, we can write that down. <laughs> um, wow. I know. 
And they're like, yes, ta-da, you have frostbite. Oh, I'm so glad I'm from spending money on this. From description of your symptoms, we have ascertained that you have frostbite. From, from the fact that my toes are gray and, and, and inching towards blackish in one point. No, it was, at that point, it was just very gray and shiny, the big toe. It didn't turn dark until it was healing a week or two later. And it wasn't it wasn't that bad frostbite, but it did dissuade me temporarily from aspirations of mountaineering. But overall, Lucy felt like this life of adventure was giving her what she needed. It did help me focus on what I wanted out of life and knowing when I would need to get it out of life. A lot of people work very, very hard in their lives and then save save all these things they'd like to do for retirement. And people talk about bucket lists all the time. And a lot of our, our clients out in Alaska, it was their bucket trip. And they were going to step foot on a glacier. And that was what they wanted to do. And at 50-something, 60-something, 70-something, most people are really only stepping foot on a glacier. And they're not going to spend hours and hours and days tromping around and ice climbing and learning all these new things and trying all these new things that are, can be relatively dangerous. And with Huntington's in her DNA, Lucy felt this all the more acutely. They can treat symptoms, but there's no cure so far. And if there isn't, by the time I would be retiring after having worked really hard and really long, I wouldn't be able to do any of the stuff that I'm getting to do now. So I kind of, it forced me to rethink my timeline and financial security versus ability and, and personal freedom to do things. So I, I could do all of these things and do them not just kind of glancingly, not just a one, two-week vacation here or, you know, a trip to the mountains there, but I could change my life for a while and have that, you know, when I was in my 20s, rather than wait until there's a decent chance that I wouldn't be capable of doing any of it. What does it feel like to have Huntington's and be thinking about that in your body while also leading people in these like very strenuous activities and like being very powerful? It can be a bit of a rush. I mean, I wouldn't tell my clients about, you know, what was going on in my medical history. That that would be silly. So there's kind of having that secret feel of... I'm doing this. It's just a lot of feeling grateful. For the most part, I I wouldn't think about it. The whole time she was in Alaska, there was one goal in particular that Lucy wanted to accomplish. Mount Bona, 16,421 feet. It is very tall and it is not a technical climb, which is why it was possible for me to think that the first time I successfully climbed a mountain, it might be this one. Keeping in mind her previous frostbite, Lucy was nervous about coming back to mountaineering, but she was determined. I'd been in Alaska a couple of years and I knew that this was probably going to be my last year up there. The company I worked for did a preseason trip and had about 12 people storm this mountain to climb it together. And so I had boots that were the right size and my toes, my toes were wonderful for the whole trip. The group set up base camp at about 10,000 feet. They built a snow kitchen so they could make food sheltered from the wind. And at base camp, there were designated areas for 
everything. The snow bathroom, which is a special, beautiful place. I mean, there's the there's the pee stick that's farther <laughs> farther afield. But when you're not using the pee stick... What's the pee stick? Uh, <laughs> the pee stick is a wand, something made out of bamboo that mountaineers use on snowy slopes to show where the path is. The pee stick is poked into the snow in a designated spot. You really want to centralize all of the yellow snow, especially when you're using snow to cook with. <laughs> so you have, you have the pee stick and then you have the trough, which it sets up. You kind of like walk around the nice big privacy wall, which is also a wind blocking wall, which is incredibly necessary. <laughs> and then into the trough area, very carefully plant your feet on either side, which of course, after the first day has now become this very icy thing. So you really, really need good balance because if your foot slips, it's going in the trough and there's there's nothing good about that. Again, things that I couldn't do once Huntington's kicks in because balance would be I'm trying to imagine someone with kind of active Korea movements on a mountaineering trip and it doesn't doesn't really sound feasible. After a few days at base camp, the group continued on to the next camp at about 12,000 feet. The scenery was icy and beautiful, and Lucy was glad she'd come on the trip. And I did fall in crevasses a couple of times, but it's such a surreal and incredible experience. Um, if you ever have the chance to fall into a crevasse, I highly recommend it <laughs> if you're on a good rope team. Have you ever, um, you know, you ever have dreams of, like, going all the way around on a swing set. Like you're, you're pushing farther and farther and you go all the way around and like seeing the world upside down and seeing everything different. And when you're hanging down in a crevasse, it's like the white snow is now is above you. And as you look down, like right around you is this like blue sky color. And then looking down and down and down as it gets darker and darker and the ice is denser and denser and then it turns into the night sky and it's like looking down at the night sky away from you. And I just had this vision of being on a swing that had gone all the way around the swing set and looking up at the sky away from me. And it's just absolutely stunning. And then the next day going up to high camp at 14,500 feet was when altitude sickness really started. You know, we were making our way up. I was, like, it was kind of out of my head a little bit, and I'd never thought about Huntington's more in Alaska than I did on this trip, because there's a, you know, I can't do a good job of describing what it, what it would be like to have Huntington's in terms when your mind starts going. That's something I've thought a lot about and will continue to think a lot about, you know, how it impacts your mind and your ability to think on things and whether it's still your mind, really. And as it goes through these changes and uh, you think of kind of like the ship of Theseus when it's you keep replacing each board and is it still the same ship once all the boards have been replaced? And at what point does it shift? At what point is it not the same ship? Because it's technically entirely different, but all in the same construction. And at what point is my mind no longer mine? And Or am I as a person not myself as a person? 
because of how much my mind would change. And that's always been one of the most frightening parts for me. I don't know, like I can, theoretically, I can handle the idea of losing my balance, of losing my muscle control, of not being able to take care of myself physically. But the idea of losing myself mentally is terrifying. And, you know, as, as I got higher and higher with the altitude sickness, I, it was just this weird, fuzzy brain space where I couldn't make decisions and I couldn't focus long enough. Like I knew I needed to do something and I knew I needed to eat, but I couldn't make that decision to eat and I couldn't force myself to drink. So Lucy stayed at high camp as the others made the final trek to the summit. And I was like, oh. So I've, I've come to Alaska only to, you know, to get away from Huntington's and get away from thinking about it. And now I have given myself a preview of what it looks like to be in a brain that can't think the way that I'm used to being able to think. And that part was, I was terrified. And even though it was her goal to climb Mount Bona, when it was time to come back down the mountain, Lucy was relieved. She'd expected to face avalanches and crevasses on the mountain. She hadn't expected to face Huntington's. First-degree fun is something that's fun in the moment while it's happening. And second-degree fun is something that's fun as soon as it's over. And then third-degree fun is something that's never fun. It wasn't fun in the moment. It's not fun when it's over. It's not fun looking back on it from a distance. And all of the the dangers of mountaineering, the, the physical dangers fell into kind of a second degree fun, although it was all like the view at every point was first degree. Um, but the, that weird, I'm not in my brain right now feeling that was, that was third degree. And so I've, I have no intentions of going over 14,000 feet ever again, however wonderful the, the adventure was. There are things in life that you are and things in life that you decide to be. And they're both part of you. They're both, they should both bear the same weight. Uh, You know, I'd always been someone who wrote and always someone who sang and always someone who really loved movies (laughs) with the Huntington's like, and this too is something that I am. It's something that I didn't try for. It's something that I didn't work at. It's It's not something I can be proud of. It's something that is part of me that is inherent to me in a way that I don't feel like I can claim credit for. But there are the things that you decide to do that also make no less of a statement about who you are. And moving to Alaska and making decisions that maybe seem less sound or straightforward or natural for me, pushing myself in those directions. It was a way to assert something about myself that wasn't natural and wasn't Huntington's. I've been having some hard traveling, I thought you knowed. I've been having some hard traveling way down the road. 
I've been having some hard traveling, hard rambling, hard gambling. I've been having some hard traveling, Lord. You know, having seen what happened with my grandmother, I have this vision of the long, slow, prolonged decline while also being surrounded by a loving family and an ever-growing family. And, you know, she got to meet her great-grandson very, very briefly before she passed. Uh, poor kid, his you know, first six months of life, he went to four funerals, um, but was always the best part of everyone. And he... Uh, the the most amazing part, and I, you know, I can't speak for her, um, but I think it would have been a really amazing thing to meet him and to know that he didn't have it. Um, so my my sister, when she got tested shortly after I did, uh, did not have it, for which we are very, 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 very grateful. And now she has a lovely son that has no chance of having it. Um, and if he has children in the future, they don't either. Our storyteller was a woman we're calling Lucy. She wanted to remain anonymous because it's currently unclear whether folks with pre-existing conditions will be able to keep their health insurance. In speaking publicly about her Huntington's gene, Lucy's afraid she might lose her health insurance. I'm Erin Jones. The show is produced by me, Caroline Ballard, Alana Elder, and Annie Osborne. Our digital producer is Anna Rader. Micah Schweitzer is our senior producer. And Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. Next time on Human Nature, we'll hear about an unexpected midnight encounter in the mid-Atlantic. Listen for that on September 27th. It's Human Nature.